Well, good morning. I am excited to be back in the book of Ephesians. I cannot wait to keep walking through this book. We started it in the fall. Uh, we took a break for mission emphasis and praise God for uh, the ability to focus on the nations and for the generosity of this church, the money that was raised for missionaries. Then we had Advent over Christmas. And then, you know, every preacher wants to start with something that's going to encourage us moving forward in our vision. So we did membership and meaningful membership in January. Finally, we're back to Ephesians. So I'm excited about that. Um, we're going to pray for another church right down the road in San Marcos. Uh, many of you may know this already. And if you don't, uh, just let it fuel your prayers, okay? Uh, Pastor Chad uh, Chaddick at FBC San Marcos. A couple weeks back, I, I called him on the phone. He found out um, some really serious medical news uh, with his wife. And so, he, man, this guy, in the midst of uh, just hard news, is trusting the Lord. And I think of uh, Hebrews 11. We step out in faith by trusting God, even when we don't know the answers. And he's doing that. And so pray for uh, the church, for the ministry staff, the pastor team, specifically uh, for Pastor Chad and his family as his wife walks through this uh, medical diagnosis. So let's pray, and uh, we're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 4. Lord, we, uh, we do declare our salvation is in Christ alone. There is hope in your redemption story. And I just ask God, not only because we're entering the sermon time, but we have sung it, we have prayed it, we're going to hear it preached. I ask God that you would chisel that truth deep into our heart, to the soul gut level of who we are, that Jesus saves. And if Jesus saves, it changes everything. Let that be true in my life and let that be true in the lives of those gathered here today, in the life of our church would we remember those things as identity markers of all who have been adopted into your family? God, we do pray for uh, Sister Church right down the road, FBC San Marcos, specifically knowing uh, just how hard it is to, uh, to walk through some of the circumstances of our lives. And uh, Pastor Chad, right in front of everyone in the position you've called him to, is walking out his faith. And his wife and their family, they're walking out their faith. God, I know that you can do immeasurably more than all we ask or think. And so if you bring healing, Lord, would we glorify you? We pray that you would do a miracle. God, I also know uh, that at times we are walking through the reality of the curse of sin and brokenness, and we long for Christ's return, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so as a church, as they walk through this collectively, would they say, come, Lord Jesus, come. As a church, as they uh, pray and intercede and serve and love, would they do it all knowing that when Jesus comes back, all of these things are righted? Would we be people that are longing to see the return of our Savior? So even now, as we come to Ephesians 4, there's so much good truth here, God. I just ask that the Holy Spirit would, would meet us with the truth of the word and we'd walk out changed. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And uh, if you're already there, awesome. If you're not, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We spent a lot of time in January talking about healthy church and meaningful 
church membership. And there is a, a common denominator when a church is unhealthy. And I've seen it in other churches. I've prayed for other churches. By God's grace, I've never been pastoring in a church like this. But, but when the church starts to brainstorm and, and pray and you hear murmuring to say, we, we gotta create unity here because man, we're, it feels like we're, we're getting distracted or we're getting divided. We, it's on us to create the unity. That's when you know that a church is not very healthy. If we can focus on the things that we discussed in January, I think as a church we'd keep our eyes fixed on Christ and standing on the truth of the word and, and we wouldn't think that we need to create unity because what we learn in our passage today is that unity is a gift given to the church, bought, purchased, and paid for by the blood of Christ. If we know those things and we're moving forward with that truth, yeah, we strive to maintain it. We're eager to maintain it, but we never get so distracted to think that we must create it. We're looking at this theme in Ephesians 4 that Christians and specifically local churches are called to walk worthy as one. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. You can follow along with me, please. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's some context here. Therefore, is right in our passage, and I know you're going to be tired of me saying this one day, but until that happens, I'm going to say it. When you study your Bible... And you see the word therefore, it's so important to ask yourself, what is the therefore there for, right? What's going on in this text before or after? He's saying, I urge you therefore. So what has just happened? Well, he just prayed for the saints at Ephesus, a very rich prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's the, the bulk of the prayer. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. He is pleading with the Lord. God, I love these Christians at Ephesus. I, I beg you, would they know the love of Christ? And not just here, but, but, but all throughout this unimaginable totality of the love of Christ that's as high as you can imagine, deep as you can imagine, long and wide as you can imagine. And if they know that, they would be strengthened in their inner being to be filled with all your fullness. God, I just ask that you would fill them with the fullness of the Holy Spirit and they would know the love of Christ. That's the prayer. Then he goes on to say in chapter four, I therefore urge you, because of what I'm praying for you, because I know God is faithful to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think, now I can challenge you to live it. Once you live 
like you know the surpassing love of Christ? Why don't you live like you're filled with the fullness of God? Why don't you live like you're strengthened by his spirit in your inner being? So chapter 4 begins to tell us this is how we walk worthy because of the ways that we've already been prayed for if we're thinking about this applying to our church, FBC Wimberley. It's time to live it. We know who we are in Christ. We know that in Jesus, he is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. So we think about the structure, chapter one through three. It's all about who we are in Christ, right? Chapter one, all these identity markers. I quoted a little bit of chapter two. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were sinners. Chapter three, all this prayer that they would be filled with the fullness of God. It's all about the individual Christian, who we are individually in Christ. Now four, five, and six, we have a turn. And now... The book of Ephesians, addressed to the saints at Ephesus, but applied to us as New Testament believers, is all about who we collectively are in Christ. So one through three, who we are individually, four, five, and six. Think about it. Five, instructions for the family and marriage, children, how we should relate to our employers, chapter six. Who we are, chapter four, this unity. Strive to maintain unity. Walk worthy. You're not divided, right? You're one in Christ. You should be living like it. One through three, who we are individually. Four, five, and six, who we are collectively as a group of Christians, as a local church. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first charge of the text, walk worthy because of your new identity. Walk worthy because of your new identity. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you have been called. So we got to remember the context. We're challenged to walk worthy. How do we do that? We remember who we are in Christ. Chapter one, we remember that in Christ we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We remember that we are chosen and adopted. We're called holy and blameless. We are loved by God. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we're given grace and redemption, forgiveness, and we're united together. In him, we have an inheritance. We've been predestined to the praise of his glory. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. In Christ, even though we were dead, now we're alive, chapter 2. In Christ, we've been given access to the Father through the Son, that we might pray in the authority of Jesus' name. Hey, I gotta remember this. If I'm gonna walk worthy as one, I'm gonna remember these things to exemplify the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit, I gotta remember I have access to God, which means when I'm not doing that, what am I charged to do? Run to the cross. Run to the cross and repent it and say, Lord, help me. I'm not walking worthy of the calling you've given to me. We had that access This is who we are. We were once far off, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We are a family. Remember who we are. If you can do that, I think you will be well on your way to honoring God and walking worthy. Remember your calling. We've been called to walk worthy because God has placed a calling on our lives. Romans 8 is one of my favorite passages. We love 828, right? All things work to the good of those who love him. I love that verse. But we've got to finish the context, right? And are called according to his purpose. Called to what? To be conformed into the image of Christ. Oh, hang on. Sometimes being conformed is painful. 
being put in the refiner's fire isn't always easy. It's hot in there. And things are getting burned away when I'm in the refiner's fire. I want all things to work to the good of those who are loved by God and called, but I don't know that I'm always willing to sign up for that conforming into the image of Christ. And then we've got verse 30 reminding us who we are predestined, called, justified, and conformed, just like I was saying. If you know that that's who you are, then you walk worthy. It's an honor to walk worthy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's an honor to walk worthy because we're representing the one who loved us, chose us, and gave his life up for us. It's an honor. It's not a burden. Sometimes it's a burden for my kids to obey me and represent the colliers well, right? Like, listen, we're asking you, you honor God and honor your family name, right? It shouldn't be a burden for a Christian. These are all the things Christ has already given us. And if he gave it to us freely, it's our, our joy to respond by saying, I want to honor you with my life. Walk worthy because of your new identity. We're tasked with this purpose and calling to be an ambassador and represent his great name. So the text gets very specific. It says, here are five ways that you can walk worthy. Five very specific ways that you can walk worthy. Number one. With all humility. Humility, right? John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Psalm 115, not to us, O God, but to your name be the glory. It's not about me. It's not about my reputation. It's about you. It's about your kingdom. It's about your glory. Some of us who are familiar with this surf brand in Hawaii have on the back of our cars, he is greater than I. It's a good reminder for me. It's not heady, by the way. If you ever see that, you're like, what, heady? What does heady mean? No, it's he is greater than I. We are called to walk with all humility. I can only be humble because of who I am in Christ. When I struggle with pride or arrogance and I need a reminder to be humble, I can look no further than 1 Peter 5. It says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's easy for someone in my position who is up on a platform, who is sitting here as a declarer or a proclaimer or a preacher of God's word to just kind of think, <laughs> that's so great. And it's a temptation, not just for me, but for anyone that's put on a platform. That's why constantly in our one-on-one -on -one or small group conversations say, do not put your lead pastor on a pedestal. It's already hard enough for me to stay humble. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm a man. I make mistakes. I need Jesus just like everybody else. But one thing, very specifically in my life, I was having accountability as a student pastor in Dallas. My accountability partner, we met weekly, we prayed for each other, we confessed sin to each other, we encouraged one another. And he had me memorize, I don't have it memorized anymore, I'm gonna read it, from Isaiah 66, verse one and two. And he said, Aaron, if you can't get a handle on humility, you are gonna put a stumbling block in front of God wanting to use you to do anything that he wants to use you for. You gotta stay humble. Here's the passage. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build it for me? And what's the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. By the way, I don't know if you caught it. What God is saying there in verse 1 is, hey, look, (laughs) the heavens are my throne. Like, who's more great than me? Or the earth is my footstool. Man, you're so pleased with what's going on down there, but it's just a footstool for me. Who could build a house for me? No one can build a house for me. I don't need a house. I've got the universe that I spoke into existence. He says, what's the place of my rest? God doesn't need to rest. We need to rest because we're not God. God is God and doesn't need a place of rest, right? The whole verse is setting up the fact that God is awesome. And despite him being so awesome, if you want to get his attention, verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right? This is a marker of walking worthy as one especially in the context of our relationships with each other. It's not about me. Let's talk about your interest. Philippians 2. Look not only to my own interest, but the interest of others, right? That's the attitude of Christ. How can we apply that in this church family? How can we walk worthy as one? We remember who we are in Christ, totally changed from the inside out, and my flesh, which would have wanted to be selfish, greedy, and prideful, is now replaced with a humility and a selflessness and a kindness and a love for my brothers and sisters. That's the way it's supposed to be, church. And that's just the first marker, right? How do we walk worthy five ways? One, with all humility. Number two, with gentleness. And I want to be clear here. Oftentimes when I think of the meekness of Christ, people get that confused. Or if you're being challenged to be gentle, maybe you would think, oh, that's a weakness. It's a weakness to be gentle, Jesus was meek, not because he didn't have power, but he chose gentleness. Gentleness is how Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11. I'm gentle and lowly. And I don't know if you're like some man's man, you know, you, you swole up, you work out in the gym, you drive fast cars, or you ride a motorcycle, I'm a man's man, right? And you think meekness and gentleness, I'm not so sure about that, Jesus, I want with the strong Jesus, right? Here's how we should understand meekness. Jesus had the most power of any man because he was the God man and he chose not to domineer. He chose gentleness. He chose meekness. Now there were some times when the religious leaders saw the bad side of Jesus' anger, okay? But more often than not, he chose gentleness. Now, this is as if someone has, like, I don't know sports cars very well, right? But I've been in a car that accelerated and I hit the back of the seat, you know, that kind of car. The car that's got mad power under the hood, this huge engine and torque and acceleration. And you've got this car and all you want to do is show off for people. And you see a bunch of kids over here at a school, in a school zone. And you have the, the thought, I could, if I wanted to peel out and just scream through the school zone because, man, I got the power in this car. Or you could 
do the responsible thing in the school zone and for the safety of the kids say, I got the power, but I'm choosing not to use it. I'm choosing to walk in meekness or gentleness. This is the description that we should have over one another. It is the gentleness that we're called to when we are taking care of someone that's stumbling in sin. Galatians 6. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. Restore him how? In a spirit of gentleness. So walking worthy as one, we should be exuding this gentleness. When people consider, how do I know that that person's changed in Christ? They should say, I know who he used to be before he met Jesus. (laughs) But now there's a gentleness about them. There's a change. There's something different about them. Humility, gentleness. Next one, with patience. You see it right there out of the text. With patience. And I don't know if there's anyone in the room that struggles with patience. I'm not going to make you out yourself, okay? Uh, I have struggled with patience often in my life. And so the thing that I would, of course, encourage you to do is to pray for patience. But I would warn you that if you pray for patience and God delivers it will probably mean that you're struggling more with patience. You might have a prayer like this. God, I need more patience, so hurry up and give me patience. I need it. In New Mexico, I got to uh, play a lot of golf. It was really affordable. It's like $600 for the year. You play unlimited golf, all right? It's not as affordable in Wimberley. <laughs> Plus, God has called me to a new task, and so there's a busy schedule in my mind. But I never learned more need for patience than when I was on the golf course. Because all I want to do is tear through people. Like, I want to pass every group, and I want to just hit. I don't need a practice swing, all right? I'm just, I'm there to play golf. But God taught me patience. I was reading this past week uh, in a book, and the author said he struggled with patience. It's a really good nugget of truth here. He said, I just need to realize that if God is sovereign over all the details of all of our lives, that when I'm stuck behind that crazy person going 15 miles under the speed limit, it's probably because God has all the details worked out, and he wants me to be going slower. Well, that, that helps. <laughs> That helps with patience. The way that we show patience to one another should be describing the fact that we're changed from the inside out. And I don't know if you've noticed thus far, with the exception of humility, all of these five markers are in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I wonder, as you even just ask right now, the Holy Spirit, show me which one of these things that I need to surrender to you. Show me which one of these things that I need to ask Jesus to be in control over my life. Is it humility? Is it gentleness? Is it, is it patience? And then we got two more. And now we're really starting to think about how it's us walking worthy together. These are not just individual character markers, but how we interact with each other and walk worthy together. There in verse two, it says, bearing with one another in love. 
bearing with one another. Now, every family has at least one crazy uncle. You know what I'm talking about? Don't name names, okay? The guy you don't necessarily want to sit next to at the Thanksgiving table, that's your crazy uncle, by the way. This is a church family. We got some crazy uncles. And we're called to love each other with all humility and patience and gentleness. We are to bear with one another. I don't want you to point any fingers, but if you know some of the crazy uncles in this church, Maybe consider the fact that other people think you're that guy in their life. <laughs> and love each other. And bear with one another. And say, hey man, how can I carry your load with you? How can I encourage you or stir you up to love and good works? We're a family. That means no one's outcast. We're in this thing together. So we let the word of God dwell in us richly singing excuse me, hymns, psalms, and songs over one another. How do we do that as a church family? Listen, I have been that guy in the past. I have been focused on one thing over another. I have been maybe a bit obnoxious, and I sure am glad that church families put up with me and bared with me in love. And you know how they could do that? Let's just be honest. In our own relationship with the Lord, how many times do you think God would have had you do something different and you didn't? How many times do you think God showed his steadfast love for you? How, do you, how, how, how many times do you think God was patient to get angry with you, right? That classic Old Testament verse. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if you really are honest with yourself and your walk with the Lord, how many times could God have smited you, yet he showed you what it is to bear in love because of what Christ did on the cross? And if Jesus did that for us, man, we can do that for each other. Amen? It's hard. It's hard. But if that's the character of God towards us in our lives, we can absolutely try to exude that with our church families. Jesus showed it in the Gospels. Matthew 17, he said, oh, you faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long do I bear with you? How long do I have to bear you up? I would have rather gathered you together like a mother hen, but you, you faithless generation. He showed us how to do it. And then, of course, 1 Peter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. Man, if you love, you can bear with one another. I'm not saying that it's now, and I praise God that it's not now, but there might be a season one day where it's tough in this church to bear with one another. And if or when that happens, what will you decide to do? Give up, give in, or will you remember Ephesians 4? I know who I am in Christ, and I know who we are in Christ, and so I'm going to walk worthy as one. We better get prepared before that temptation happens. The last one, how do we 
How do we do this? Number five, we maintain the gift of unity. And I told you before, it's a gift. Unity is a gift. It's not the church's job to create unity. It's the church's job to strive or be eager to maintain this unity. The reason that we have unity is we have one thing in common. Even if we're different in so many other areas of our lives, we're different in our our gifts and talents, our jobs and our skill set, different in our financial situation, different in our ethnic situation, we have one thing in common. You know what that is? We're covered by the blood of Christ. And if we know that, and we raise the banner of Jesus and the banner of the gospel, we can strive to maintain the unity that we've been given. We can be eager, not only this reconciliation vertically, but this reconciliation horizontally, that we are one in Christ. I say this a lot. Chris and I get to do pre-marriage counseling, and I think Satan wants to destroy the family. Satan wants to destroy marriages. He knows the end of the story. He's going to go cast into the lake of fire. He knows that at the end of the day, God, Father, Son, and Spirit get big G glory. Christ is our victory, right? The resurrection has already signed, sealed, and delivered the fact that Satan will not last for eternity. And so now, in this time between the times, I think Satan's job is to every turn try to win a small battle and take small G glory. Now, I'm not saying Satan takes God's glory because God wins. I am saying there are little examples where Satan can distract believers or keep unbelievers tempted in sin and the world and, and worldliness so that he can rob small G glory. And you know what? He wants to do this in the church too. He wants to get churches divided and distracted. He wants to get small G glory because he knows there's no way he can have big G glory. And as he tries to do that, it's the temptation of churches to not obey this scripture. But if we know who we are in Christ and who we are in Christ, we strive to maintain the unity that we've been given. It's a gift. So let's steward it well, church. Amen. Amen. So we walk worthy as one. Here's the second big point and we'll be done. Walk worthy because we are one in unity. Right? It's that same point. We're one. And how does the Bible remind us that? By repetition. Over and over and over and over. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. We're one. We have a common confession. We're one in Christ. We're one. And did you know that's how Jesus prayed for us in the Gospel of John? As he is literally sweating drops of blood because he knows he's got to go to the cross and that's going to be very difficult as a man. Yet Jesus still prays for the church. John 17. Look at verse 11 or just listen as I read it. Jesus praying, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus still praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. It's this picture that when the world sees the church and the church is united, 
and the church is together, that the church is walking forward as one, that's a testimony to the world. And they said, we don't get it. There's some crazy uncles in that group and they love them anyways. We don't get it. They shouldn't be united. They voted differently at the last election. What do you mean they're united? We don't get it. They're different races and creeds and backgrounds. Man, we don't, how can they be one? We, we don't get it. Their families for generations have been angry with each other, and here they are as one family in a church. We don't get it. They're one. We don't understand how they could be united. And then we get the opportunity to say, it's because Jesus has made us one. It's because Jesus took all of our sin at the cross, and he said, if you turn from sin and trust in me, I give you new life. It's because Jesus cleansed me. It's because I know what it is to walk in weakness so I can bear with my brother or sister and look past their weakness and tell them, turn their eyes to Christ and keep running after Jesus. Man, when the world sees that, church, we get to live the way we've been called to live on mission. And so we've got some time and I've left it on purpose. I wanna show you something and if you are a little bit uncomfortable with this, I'll just say I'm sorry, but I'm gonna ask everyone to stand, come towards the middle, okay? Everyone stand and come towards the middle of your aisle. I want you to hold hands. I know this might be a little silly, but it means something. So, so get, get towards the middle of your, of your row and hold hands. Are we gonna get there? We're going to get there. Now look around. This is your church family. Some of us visitors, most of us members, through two worship gatherings. This is your family. Look around. When you think about this new structure in Ephesians, it now begins to say, as a church, we know who we are in Christ. Look around. I say, man, I, I, I want to walk worthy as one with these people. I want to live on mission with these people. I want to be involved in each other's lives. I want to see the way that Christ-centered homes are raising these kids in the next generation. I want to be a part of that. Even if you're a grandparent, you get to be excited about what God's doing in your church family. When people are hurting and struggling, it's not someone else's job to bear with them. It's your job. Look at the text, to walk in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and striving to maintain the unity in the spirit. We're one, church, we are one. And if we can remember who we are in Christ individually and collectively, God can do big things here, amen? And I want him to, I want him to. Thank you, you can have a seat. I just want you to see that picture. I want you to see it. The Bible, especially in the Psalms, says it's good when brothers dwell in unity. It's good to be united. And I think as a church, we've walked through so much in the last two or three years, but the, the attitude and the culture and the trajectory of this church is good. And there is a unity here. I praise God for that. And so now I just ask, maybe the, the way you respond is you come up and say, God, I feel that you've done some healing in this church. 
And I just want to know, what, what do you have next for us? Why have you united us to be healthy? What do you want to do here in me, in us, through this church? That would be a good way to respond to this sermon. But maybe individually you would sense your need for further growth in one of those areas. Humility, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another and maintaining unity. And you would just come in your own weakness and lay bare on your knees saying, Jesus, change me. Come and pray with someone. Bring, bring someone up. And I tell, I tell people this all the time. You might be embarrassed to come to the front. Go to the back of the room. It's standing and walking. That, that action of saying, I'm, I'm ready to put a, a, a stake in the ground in a spiritual milestone and say, God, I need your help here. Or maybe you heard every reference to Jesus dying for you today with new eyes and new ears. And as you understand this good news of the gospel, that those who were once lost can be found, that those who are dying and destined for doom can be saved in Christ alone, and you would come and you'd say, tell me more about Jesus. I want to trust him for the first time. I don't know how you need to respond to this text, but I'm very, very, very affirmed in, in who I am as a preacher, but also convicted as a proclaimer of the word that we don't just sit here to check a box and say, oh, that sermon, cool, great, went to church. No, instead we come in humility with open hands and we say, God, how should I respond? 